John 8, beginning in verse 48 and going through the end of the chapter, I want to bring a message entitled, A Stinging Exchange. A Stinging Exchange. This, uh, this conversation has gone back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Last week reached the very pinnacle of the argument where Jesus, in the previous verses, verses 39 through 47, exposes the Jewish leaders as children of Satan, as liars, as those who do not know God and they do not know Him. Now you know why I've entitled this message, A Stinging Exchange. Can you imagine being one of those Jewish leaders who has followed the law in your mind all of your life? An expert in Jewish Old Testament, in the Torah. That they ritualistically, daily rise from their bed and go through a procedure to purify themselves so that they might serve God. And then to have Jesus of Nazareth say to you, you're a child of Satan. Not you're a bad guy that needs to improve. He calls them satanic. He says, you're a liar. All of you are liars. Can you imagine the sting? I mean, I don't like to be called any name. And I... I've only one time been called a child of Satan. And I'll tell you, it stings. It stings. It's personal. But isn't that the way we respond when we don't agree with the truth? Don't we respond to the truth when we reject it and when we run from it and when we refuse to believe it? Think back before you were a Christian, didn't you often turn to personal attack? You couldn't disprove what was being said. So instead of trying to disprove it, you stop that route and just attack the person that's presenting the truth. You ever been there? That's where we find Jesus today. The Jewish leaders' mouths have been stopped. What else can they say? He has exposed them for the true person they really are. And we see in verse 48 the beginning of a, of, a, of, a, of a response from the Jewish leaders. Jesus is, first of all, Jesus' words pierce the leaders' souls and force a response. Jesus does this throughout His ministry. He doesn't allow people to simply get into an academic debate with Him over the truth. We fail there, don't we, often? We get into just rational, academic arguments with people about the truth. We want to reason with them. Jesus quickly goes from presenting the truth to calling them to a response about the truth. He doesn't allow them to sit there and debate back and forth at no end over this reality He's presented. He presents the truth and He tells them whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And their response is in verse 48. You see it? It's a stinging response. They're hurt and they lash out. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
The response here is a response of rebellion. They're responding in rebellion. In verse 48. They've heard the truth. They've heard the truth about themselves, who they are, and they rebel against it. And often when they rebel, or when we rebel as humans, we rebel in a very personal way. You see, all through chapter 7 and chapter 8, they've tried to reason with Jesus about the truth. And they've been stopped at every point. They've been proven wrong everywhere they turn. And so in frustration now in verse 48, they say, aren't we right to say you're a Samaritan? And maybe you don't identify with what they've just said to Jesus because of the cultural gap. So let me bridge it for you. Look in verse 19 of chapter 8. In verse 19, the Jewish leader said to him, Where is your father? Remember what we said they were doing? They were beginning to question him about his birth. You see, everybody in Jesus' circle, friends, and everybody in Jesus' hometown, and the Jewish leaders probably by this point know that Mary was pregnant before her and Joseph were officially married. And so they have a question. Who is your father? Matthew tells us, remember, that when Joseph heard Mary was with child, he sought to put her away quietly to divorce her in that betrothal period, that engagement period. Put her away so that she wouldn't be ashamed. So she she wouldn't be made fun of. So she wouldn't be ridiculed. And so they know this story. And when they can't come back at him, when he's putting them on the hot seat, so to speak, about the truth... They turn personal. Who is your father? And so we see it there in verse 19. Look in verse 33. In verse 33, they continue with this. After a quick exchange, then they turn back. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? The subject of fatherhood, it runs throughout this passage, doesn't it? Who is your father? We're children of Abraham. He's our father. Look at look now in the same chapter, chapter 8, verse 39. They say, Abraham is our father. You see, now they're getting indignant. We're insisting. You say we're not of Abraham. I'm telling you, we're children of Abraham. We're of the promise. Look at verse 41. The subject comes up again. This time they reveal... Their true motive. What did they say? We were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, Jesus, you want to talk about us and you want to accuse us of not being children of God and children of the promise? Your mother and father were in sexual immorality when you were conceived. Matter of fact, Joseph might not even be your dad. You're impure. Who are you to accuse us? The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, those who followed the law our whole lives. Who are you to accuse us? It's a personal attack in verse 41, isn't it? It's a personal attack and it gets more personal in verse 48. Because now not only are they saying that you might be an illegitimate son... Now they're saying, you're a half-breed Samaritan. You're of mixed blood. 
You're no true Jew. They've been stopped in their tracks with the truth and their response is rebellion. And they turn and lash out on the messenger. And they call him with a racial slur. It's racism being exposed here. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Samaritans descended from the Jews who stayed in northern Israel after it was taken over by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians practiced, as it was common in that day, when a conquered people were being possessed by a new empire, they would often take off, and you read about in the Old Testament, take off people from that region and send them to the capital city of the conquering empire to be trained, right? And they would also bring in people from the empire to the newly conquered territory. The Assyrians planted people in northern Israel. And the Jews who were left there married and intermarried with the Assyrians and produced what are now known as Samaritans. By Jesus' day, they're known as Samaritans. They're from Samaria, this capital city of northern Israel. And they hated the Samaritans. They hated Gentile people. Anybody that wasn't a Jew was second class at best. But it was far worse than being a Gentile to be a Samaritan. The Jews of Jesus' day made practice of bypassing Samaria, the region of northern Israel, bypassing it when they traveled. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria. In turn, the few Jews who had to go through Samaria on a trip, the Samaritans would not let the Jews sleep inside, in their hotels, in their homes. They made them sleep on the streets. Samaria was a very dangerous place. Many robs and robbers and thieves because of this practice of making people sleep outside. The robbers and thieves knew they could take advantage of people during the night. So it was a collection of, of vile people, really. And so when they're saying to Jesus, aren't you a Samaritan? Their hearts have been pierced by the truth, and their response is rebellion. Who are you to tell us about the truth? You're a half-breed. You're despicable. We wouldn't walk across the street and help you if you were in trouble. To contrast the, the, the racism of the Jews with the love of Jesus Christ, the first person that Jesus exposed himself as the Son of God to in this letter, this gospel letter, the first person in John chapter 4 was a Samaritan woman. Jesus wasn't a racist. Jesus didn't despise the Samaritans. I believe that when they called him a Samaritan, though he knew it was a lie and he knew it was a response out of rebellion, I believe because he loved the Samaritans, he wasn't offended in the least. It's okay if you call me a Samaritan. I'll still love them and I'll lovingly present the truth to you. It doesn't bother Jesus in the least. He exposed himself in John's gospel in chapter 4 to a Samaritan woman. And we might remember Jesus' popular parable, the good Samaritan, where he makes the Samaritans a hero. 
He says to some of these same men, there was a man who fell among robbers and thieves on his way to the temple. And a priest passed by, and a Levite passed by, and he was a Jewish man, but they wouldn't help him because they were afraid, and they were in too big a hurry, and they were too religious. And then the good Samaritan came by, and seeing the man in need, doctored and bandaged his wounds, laid him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, checked him in. Now, we know the background. Remember, they wouldn't let a Jew stay in a hotel, right? But the Samaritan vouched for him, is what Jesus is saying by implication. They wouldn't have let that Jew in had he been healthy and by himself. But because the Samaritan went to another Samaritan and said, this is my friend, take him in. He needs your help. Here's the money to doctor his wounds and pay for his stay. And when I come back, if he owes anything else, I'll give it. Jesus said, this man is a hero. This Samaritan is a hero. You ought to be like the Samaritan. So when the Pharisees think they're doing damage to Jesus, Jesus, I think, was very proud. I'm not offended in the least by your racism. You can call me whatever you like. Jesus knew their rebellion. Jesus was forcing them to respond to the truth. He doesn't allow us to stand on the fence of indecision. Jesus' truth, His Gospel, forces a response. You can't enter a presentation like this, a preaching time like this, and leave without making a decision. I told a young man I was sharing the Gospel with not long ago, just a couple weeks ago as a matter of fact, Tears streaming down his face, I said, when you leave this place and we're done talking, you will have made a decision about the gospel. You will either believe it or you will reject it. You can't stay neutral in the spiritual life. Jesus' words pierce the heart and force a response. And their response is rebellion. Is that your response? I mean, it's easy to pick apart the racism and the hatred and the and the nature of the Pharisees. This group 2,000 years ago that we are really disconnected from. But the reality is, this applies to your life. Are you rebelling against the truth of God's Word today? As you hear the Word of God, are you in your spirit saying, I don't believe that, I don't want to believe that, I'm not going to believe that. Possibly anger is even rising up inside of you. Who does this kid think he is to preach to me like this? To talk to me this way? I don't like him and I don't like his Jesus and I don't like his word. Well, you have fellowship with the Pharisees then. Your response is like theirs. Look at the gentle response though of our Redeemer. In verse 49. Jesus answered. He didn't say, I'm not a Samaritan. He didn't return a barb at them. He didn't get angry, right? Because the Scripture says when He was reviled, He reviled not in return. What did He say? In verse 49, I don't have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Look what He says in verse 51. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus has a gentle response to them, doesn't He? Christian, when you're attacked, 
maybe personally, like Jesus is being attacked, how are you responding to that attack? Is your response to lash back and to attack that lost man and to put him in his place and to make him feel belittled and humbled? Or is your response simply, you know, guys, you can avoid the truth by making this personal, but the truth is, I'm not the things you're saying about me. And if you don't believe this word, you're going to taste death forever. But if you believe this word, you'll never taste death. Is your response gentle? Or is it to return a harsh response with another harsh response? Jesus was gentle. Jesus shows His mercy, His love, His character. It's on full display as He speaks to these men. Look what He says. He says, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. You know what He's saying? You're not of God. He's again telling them, you're not, you're not believers. You're not true children of the promise. Because I'm following the Father, and if you were following the Father, you would be with me, not against me. Look what He says. There is one, speaking of God, who seeks glory for Jesus, and He is the judge. I'm not glorifying myself. God glorifies me. God had glorified Jesus, hadn't He? At His baptism, it says He came up out of the water and that a voice from heaven shouted out, This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended in the form of a dove over Him. He was glorified at His baptism. He was approved of by His Father. His Father glorified Him. He wasn't looking to glorify Himself. He was looking to glorify His Father. There was a great love fest going on between Jesus and the Father. And there still is today. A great love fest between the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Jesus says, My Father honors me. But you don't honor me, so you can't be of my Father. There's only one who honors me, and it's the Father, and He's the judge. In that simple statement, He's again putting the truth in front. He's not making this about Him in the sense of humanly speaking. They want to get into a human exchange about his character and about whether he's a Samaritan or possessed of the demon. Jesus takes it out of that. He doesn't get down in the slop with them and roll around in the mud of exchanging name-calling. Jesus raises back up and says, No, I'm not any of those things you're accusing me of. Let me tell you the truth again. I'm from the Father. I'm honoring the Father. The Father's honoring me. And if you don't believe my words, you're going to taste death. But if you believe my words, you'll never taste death. Jesus keeps the focus on the gospel. The truth of Jesus Christ's gospel. And so lost person here today. There's lost people in this room. There are people who do not believe the truth of this gospel with us today. I would say to you, the gospel is the issue. Jesus Christ's gospel is the issue. And what is the gospel? The gospel is you are a sinner. You are imperfect. You have failed. You were born in sin. The psalmist in 51 tells us we were born in iniquity. You are in every way short of the glory of God. No matter how good you are, no matter how kind you are, in your estimation, you fall short. And the thing is, everyone in here falls short. We are all 
sinners. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, sin separates us from God. God and sinners cannot have association together. No matter how good you think God is, no matter how kind you think He is or merciful, and He is all those things, He cannot overlook your sin. He cannot say, well, I know they're not perfect, but I'll just bring them in with me anyway. He can't do it. If He does, He's no longer just. And the Bible says He's a just God. He's no longer righteous if He does that. So He can't just look past your sin and say, I accept you. It's okay that you're a sinner. He can't do that. If you believe that today, you do not believe the gospel. You're a sinner and God is holy and you are separate. And so Jesus, the Son of God, was born of a virgin. And He lived a sinless life. He was born sinless and He lived a sinless life. He obeyed the law of God perfectly in everything He did. And at the end of His life, He offered His life up. He died. Okay? And when He died, He did not die for Himself. He did not die because He had sinned. The only way He died and the only reason He died is because you and I sinned. He took our sin, if you believe in Christ as your Savior, He took your sin on Himself and He paid the just penalty for you. You were separated from God and God built the bridge through His Son so that He might deliver you to the Father. Do you understand that? You can't get there by yourself. I don't care how good you think you are or how good you may be. You cannot get there by yourself. And listen, you can't go so far from Him in sin that He can't get to you. I don't care what you've done as you sit in this place today. You may be an adulterer right now, living in adultery. You may be a murderer. You may be a thief. You may be a rebel to the core, running as far as you can from God and everything about God. And I want to tell you, the Bible says in Psalm 139, that even if you separated yourself to the bottom of the sea, God would be there. And His gospel would be true. You're separated from God in your sin and God sent His Son because He refuses to overlook your sin. He wants to pay for your sin. Jesus Christ suffered and died paying the penalty of the sin of all who would believe so that He could bring us to God. That's what Peter says. Listen, that's the most beautiful verse to me about the act of Christ on the cross. Peter says, He died so that He might bring us to God, deliver us to God. Do you see the word picture? Jesus came from heaven into flesh to die on the cross so He could pick you up and carry you to God. You were dead in your trespasses and sin and He raised you up to life and presented you to God and said, this is one of your children. The good news is, though you're a sinner and cannot please Him, 
he was pleased to give his son in your place that you might believe in him and be saved and brought to God. Jesus turns this stinging exchange into a presentation of the gospel. They attack him in rebellion and Jesus says, I know you're rebellious. I'm from the Father. You don't believe me because you're not from the Father. But if you believe in my word, you'll never taste death. He presents the gospel. And so what do you do in response to the gospel? What do you do? If you've heard the gospel this morning and your mind and heart cry out, I must believe, then believe in this gospel. And at that moment, you're saved. You're transferred from death to life. You're transferred from, from, from slavery to sin to a sonship in God through Christ. You go from separated to brought to God. Jesus Christ, the master teacher, turns this stinging exchange into a presentation of the gospel. Jesus' words not only pierce the leader's soul and force a response, but Jesus' words pierce the leader's souls and force them to attack him. He wants to expose them to the Jews that are around. Remember, many Jews have believed in him. And so now they must be in somewhat of a confusion, right? I mean, here's our spiritual leaders, but we believe in Jesus. Jesus wants to expose these men as the people that they are, for the people that they truly are. They attack His character again. Look in verse 52. Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word in verse 51, he will never see death. And the Jews think they've got him. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. They attack his character. They attack him and say, Jesus Christ is a liar. He says this, but we know the truth. Abraham and the prophets died. Therefore, what he's saying about not tasting death can't be true. They think they've got him. His stinging words pierce their souls and force them to go on the attack. Okay, he won't fall in the trap of getting into a personal slander fest about, our, about us. So we'll attack his character. He's a liar. They not only attack his character, they attack his authority. Look in verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? This is a question of authority. Abraham was the greatest figure of the Jewish faith. He was the father of the faithful. And they say, you think you're greater than our father Abraham? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? They attack his character. They attack his authority. And again... They receive a gentle response of humility. Look at verses 54 and 55. Who do you think you are, Jesus? He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. That is a a response of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verses 5 and going through verse 11, it says that Jesus did not hold tightly to the glory He had with the Father before all time began, but He humbled Himself. And He came in the form of a man, even the form of a servant, even a servant unto death on the cross. And He did not raise Himself up. The Father, in verse 11, lifts Him up and makes His name the name that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess because He is the Lord. Jesus said, look, 
I'm not glorifying myself. If I did, it would be nothing. God, He glorifies me. He glorifies me. He's calling their attention to His own character, His own humility, His own... He's contrasting for them His authority. My authority comes from the fact that I am God. He's going to get into Look what it says, verse 55, But you have not known Him... I know him. If I were to say to you, say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I know him and I keep his word. Jesus says, you want to talk about my character. I'm not a liar. If I said I didn't know him, I would be lying. You're a liar because you say you know him and you don't. Jesus responds gently and in humility. And Jesus gives the gentle response of clearly identifying himself, of identification. Look at verses 56 through 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews say, you're not 50 years old yet. He was 30, somewhere in his early 30s, 31 or so, 32 maybe. You're not even 50 yet. And you say you've seen Abraham? Now, did Jesus say that he saw Abraham? Now, I know he did see Abraham, but did he say he saw Abraham or did he say Abraham saw him? See how they twist the words? They say, you can't have seen Abraham. He was alive 2,000 years ago. You're not even 50. Jesus didn't say he saw Abraham. He said Abraham saw him. Isn't that what he said? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. He's he's not speaking about seeing Abraham, though he could have. He's speaking about Abraham seeing him in prophetic terms. Abraham saw Jesus Christ. And so you say, I'm just not sure, because that sounds a lot like Abraham believed the gospel, and I think the gospel is a new dispensation. I think it's a New Testament event. Well, I beg to differ with you. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, tells us some things about Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he called to go, was called out to go to a place that he did not know, and he received it as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was not looking for a city that was foundations or here. He was looking for a city that's foundations were in heaven and its designer and builder is God. Do you see that? Look in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay? He's recalling Genesis 22, right? God said, kill your one and only son, your promised son, kill him. And Abraham willingly went to kill his son. And look what Hebrews says he believed. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which he figuratively speaking did receive him back. Abraham saw the day of Christ. Abraham, as I said last week, is saved the same way we are. He believed the promise of God. That though I am a sinner, God will send a perfect one who will be a sacrifice on my behalf. And through him, I will be saved. And Abraham shows he believed the gospel by taking his one and only son, this child of promise, and offering him as a sacrifice, believing God would raise him up from the dead. Where does he get such a belief? Ask yourself that question. No one had ever been raised from the dead. Nobody. Matter of fact, the Hebrew people, even after Abraham, questioned whether there is such a thing as the resurrection of the dead. But not Abraham. How did Abraham know there would be a resurrection from the dead? Because God preached to him the gospel. And he believed it. Abraham said, he can raise my son up from the dead. And matter of fact, if I offer him up, he will raise him up from the dead because he's a child promising God keeps his word. How did he even know about a resurrection? Who told him about it? It had never happened before. God told him. Why did God tell him about a resurrection? Because he needed to know about the resurrection to be saved. God taught him the gospel and he believed it and he was saved. Abraham is saved like we are saved. He believed the promise of God in Christ and he was saved. And Jesus says, Abraham saw my day. He saw me and he believed and he rejoiced at my day. What a beautiful picture we have of the identification of Jesus Christ as the Lord. Jesus doesn't leave it any doubt. He says in verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. Your translation may have a small case A, mine does, and I think it should have a capital. Jesus is saying, I am, just the way God said it in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. This is God's personal name. I am has sent you, Moses. You tell him, I am sent you. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This shall be my name forever. I am who I am. And Jesus is saying, Abraham saw me and he rejoiced. Let me tell you something. Before Abraham was, I am who I am. If anybody ever tells you Jesus didn't claim to be God, reference them to this passage and tell them, Jesus said He was God. He said, I am who I am. He identified Himself with the eternal name of God. And He, in this sense, is gently reminding them or giving them His personal identification. So we come to verse 59. Jesus' words pierce the leader's souls and force them to totally reject Him. The sad truth of this passage is these people don't respond in belief. They respond in total rejection. And they attempt to take His life. They picked up stones to throw at Him, taking the law in their own hands. These men who were supposed to be law keepers are breaking the law. There's no fair trial for Jesus. There's no witnesses. 
There's no presentation before the high court whether he should or shouldn't be convicted of blasphemy. They just assume he's blasphemous and are going to stone him. Now look what it says in verse 59. They attempt to take his life, but he gives a gentle response of a miraculous exit. The gentle response in this case is he hides himself and he goes out of the temple. I say this is a miraculous exit. Some people would tend to say that this is just Jesus confused. They were confused in their attempts to pick up stones and Jesus slipped out the side door. I say it's a miracle because it's the same way John identifies all of his miracles, very simplistically, very ho-hum. Read the miracle presentations of John. He says there was a big crowd. They needed something to eat. Jesus blessed it, broke it, and they ate. Oh, by the way, 25,000 people ate from a few loaves and a few fish. It's very ho-hum. We ran out of wine at the celebration of the wedding. Jesus blessed some pots and told them to take it over, and it was wine. I mean, he's very matter-of-fact when he presents a miracle, just like he is in verse 59. Jesus hid himself, and he left the temple. You say, how did he do it? He's God. It wasn't his time to die yet. That wasn't the method that he was to die by. And so, because it wasn't his time and it wasn't the method he should die by, he disappeared. Vanished. I get the picture. They had, throw, they had stones reared back ready to go. And he was gone. And now they're looking around like, what? See, it's a gentle response. He had presented the truth. He had been attacked. He continued to present the truth. He identified himself to them so that they might believe in him. And when they totally rejected him to the point of committing murder, Jesus disappeared. He was gentle. He could have struck them dead. Couldn't he? They wanted to stone him. He could have just spoke a word. They would have been dead, gone, annihilated. He doesn't raise his hand. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't annihilate them. He just leaves. He leaves, and he leaves them probably in amazement and wonderment. And so I've put this summary statement up for you. Jesus' piercing words require a response from you today. It required a response from them, and their response was anger, rejection, and total rebellion to the point of wanting to murder Jesus. It requires a response from you. Will you believe or will you reject him? Will you accept him as your Lord and Savior and find new life and never taste death? Or will you continue to taste death and rebel against him in your anger and in your pride? I can't answer that for you. No one in this room can answer that for you. No one in your friend or family circle can answer that question for you. That's the question of the Word of God to you in your heart. Will you believe or will you reject Him? If you believe, I say to you, you are saved by His power forevermore. You will never taste spiritual death. You will live forever. And if you don't believe in Him, I tell you the opposite is true. You are a dead man walking. And when your body drops over, you will face hell, separation from God forevermore. The question has been posed It demands an answer. What will your answer be? Yes, I believe, or no, I do not believe. Let's pray. Father, I know.